Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We're trying to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible for you, and so we're trying to spoon-feed you the latest research. So let's take a quick look ahead and spoil everything coming up from this week. First, blunt cerebrovascular injuries and antithrombotics. Could we afford to go without them? Second, metronidazole and its association with the weird and wobbly. After that, getting to the bottom of pneumothoraxes in trauma. POCUS reigns supreme. Following that, we have the fourth article, which was about applying the Canadian syncope risk score to, well, not Canadians. And then finally, maybe the heart score is great. Well, because you're great. Unfortunately, we might all be great in different ways. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the Wistful, Vivian Lay, Nicholas Sreika, and Clay Smith. So without further delay, we have the first article, which was titled Blunt Cerebrovascular Injuries, Outcomes from the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma Prospective Observational Vascular Injury Treatment, Prove It, Multicenter Registry. Last month, we covered the TREAT CAD trial, which demonstrated that antiplatelets were not non-inferior to anticoagulation for stroke prevention in cervical artery dissection, so anticoagulation might be superior. Now, in the context of blunt cerebrovascular injuries, we can't be giving things like you know, anticoagulants lightly because many of these patients are going to have multiple trauma injuries, and this can cause them to bleed. Would the degree of stroke prevention be worth it? This study was an analysis of the large Prove-It registry, studying 971 patients with blunt cerebrovascular injuries, meaning there was injury to the internal carotid artery, common carotid artery, or the vertebral artery. From this group of patients, 7% had a stroke and 12% died. If the patients were treated with an anticoagulant or an antiplatelet, then there was an association with lower mortality. And this was true across all grades of vascular injury. So it didn't apply for just really high-grade injuries or patients who just had maybe very isolated trauma to that area. The authors felt that the option of not treating was not an option. 40% of the patients who survived the initial trauma but went on to have a stroke then later died in the hospital. This was a retrospective study, and thus it's prone to bias. Sicker patients with more and worse injuries would be less likely to be given an antithrombotic therapy and more likely to die. And this is what the authors thought as well. And so when they controlled for this with multivariate analysis, they found that antithrombotic therapy decreased stroke and mortality independent of injury severity. In a spoonful, antithrombotic therapy, be it anticoagulation or antiplatelets in patients with blunt cerebrovascular injury, was associated with lower rates of stroke and death, regardless of the vascular injury grade. And from that, we move on to the second article, which was titled Metronidazole-Associated Neurological Events, a Nested Case Control Study, out of the Journal of Clinical Infectious Diseases. Sorry to add yet another medication to think twice about when prescribing for older patients, but metronidazole might be one of them, we'll see. Anecdotally, there have been reports of central and peripheral nervous system toxicity, but we haven't had a large, good study to look into this before now. This study was a population-based nested case control study that identified over 1,200 adults over 65 years old living in Ontario, Canada, who had new-onset encephalopathy, 
cerebellar dysfunction, or peripheral neuropathy within 100 days of receiving a prescription for metronidazole or clindamycin. These cases were then matched with 10 times as many controls who had no symptoms but had similar exposures to metronidazole or clindamycin. Neurological events were positively associated with metronidazole exposure in the last 100 days compared with clindamycin. There was an odds ratio of 1.72, with a confidence interval that was pretty tight, spanning from 1.53 to 1.94. And this held up even after adjusting for confounders like demographics, healthcare utilization, and other medications. Why this happens, like what's the mechanism behind neurotoxicity caused by metronidazole, unfortunately that's not known. But the overall incidence in this case of happening within 100 days of a prescription was 0.25%, with central nervous system symptoms being four times more likely than anything peripheral. In a spoonful, it's not a common reaction, but metronidazole is a common antibiotic, and that means a lot of patients could be at risk for possible neurotoxic effects. And now the third article is chest ultrasonography superior to supine chest radiography in identifying pneumothorax in emergency department trauma patients out of the annals of emergency medicine. For the longest time, chest x-rays were the go-to test to look for a pneumothorax. And then came along POCUS, a fast, portable, radiation-free option that can work wonders in trained hands. The Advanced Trauma Life Support Guidelines still recommend chest x-rays as an adjunct to the primary survey, but maybe ultrasound would do better to check for a pneumothorax. Not to mention that trauma x-rays are typically done supine, and you're less likely to see a pneumothorax that way anyways. This was a Cochrane database systematic review that included nine studies to accumulate over 1,200 trauma patients with a possible pneumothorax. All patients had both a supine chest ultrasound and a supine chest x-ray. And then the confirmation of pneumothorax was done by CT or chest tube. The primary outcome was to compare ultrasound to supine chest x-ray. And ultrasound performed a little bit better. For ultrasound, pooling the results using a linear or curvilinear probe, the sensitivity was 91% with a specificity of 99%. That's better than supine chest x-ray that had a sensitivity of 47%, but a specificity now of 100%. But, it, you know, it's worth keeping in mind that not all pneumothoraxes will require treatment. I think I've said that plural differently in this two times, but you'll forgive me. So 100% sensitivity either way may not be required unless we can stratify who needs treatment and who doesn't, and it can be difficult to quantify a pneumothorax on ultrasound. So never do away with clinical judgment. As a quick aside to satiate my own curiosity, because I was chastised the other day by a staff doctor who said that I shouldn't be using a curvilinear probe to look for lung sliding which is fair, but I wanted to look into the secondary findings of this study because of it. So two studies used linear probes, and then two studies used curvilinear probes, and then the remaining five used either one or the other. Out of those groups, the one with the best sensitivity and specificity was actually the one that used the curvilinear probe alone. Now, I tend to use a curvilinear probe sometimes to look for lung sliding because it's really not that hard to see. And in a true trauma in a pinch, I'm not going to be looking to get that linear probe out to look for lung sliding because I might be doing the rest of my fast exam. So why not be consistent and just use the curvilinear all the time?
I understand that it's a lower frequency probe and you get lower resolution, I know this. Anyways, in a spoonful, chest ultrasound turned out better sensitivities than supine chest x-rays in the context of trauma. In a spoonful, chest ultrasound turned out better sensitivities than supine chest x-rays when looking for pneumothoraxes in the context of trauma. And now the fourth article titled Multi-Center External Validation of the Canadian Syncope Risk Score to Predict Adverse Events and Comparison with Clinical Judgment out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. So as you might expect, the Canadian Syncope Risk Score was designed and validated in Canadian emergency departments. Now, don't get me wrong, Canada's great, but the rest of the world might not be quite as apologetic as Canadians, so we have to see whether or not the score holds up as well in other populations. This was a retrospective study done on the prospectively collected data from the Simone trial, which is a stretch of an acronym for syncope monitoring and natriuretic peptides in the emergency department. This data contains some of the data required to do the Canadian syncope risk score. So they had 345 more Italian patients to apply the rule to. The authors compared the overall diagnostic accuracy of the Canadian syncope risk score to clinical judgment. And the risk score did a bit better. It had an AUC of 0.75 compared with 0.68 for clinical judgment although there were fewer adverse events in the clinical judgment group. Now, there are a few parts of the score that the authors had to extrapolate because they simply were not part of the data set. These were the final diagnosis of vasovagal syncope or cardiac syncope, or if the patient had a predisposition to vasovagal syncope. Also, this was a retrospective overlay, and these are all sources of bias that could take away some of the credence from the study's results. All the same, the authors were pretty bold and concluded that until further studies are done in more populations, that the Canadian syncope risk score should not be widely adopted. I can see why they're saying that, but I feel like they're overplaying the importance of their study, unfortunately. The score has been externally validated in nine Canadian emergency departments, with more than 10 times the population that was seen in this study, and this study only provides fairly weak data. I'm not sure that this study should move the needle in either direction. In a spoonful, the Canadian syncope risk score was applied to a different syncope cohort, despite some key variables needing to be extrapolated, and the result was that the score performed similar but slightly better than clinical judgment. And so we have the last article titled, A Prospective Evaluation of the Clinical Heart Scores Agreement, Accuracy, and Adherence in Emergency Department Chest Pain Patients out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. I'm so sorry, Heart Score. We've praised you a lot in the past, but lately, honestly, I'm sorry, we've been pretty down on you. It's nothing personal, really. No, I promise. It's, it's just science. Now, the interrelator reliability of the heart score has been found to be pretty good between emergency medicine physicians, except for the history component, and that varied quite a bit. So, that's pretty good. But when you compare emergency medicine doctors to cardiologists, then the agreement's not so good. And this raises some important questions. The implementation studies of the heart score tend to be quite positive but then compliance to discharging low-risk patients is low. 
So maybe the inter-rater reliability we should be looking at is between researchers and physicians. If that doesn't line up, then maybe you could explain some things as to how the heart score got to where it is today. These authors did a single-center retrospective study of 336 patients with chest pain. Emergency medicine doctors and researchers each independently gathered all the data elements to complete the heart score. And then the results were compared for agreement. Now this next part is reassuring to you, don't worry, your medical degree is quite valuable. Clinicians were 100% sensitive for major adverse cardiac events compared to researchers which were only 87% sensitive. That's kind of besides the point though, the primary outcome was agreement. But what I said might kind of ruin the surprise, the agreement wasn't great. The exact number on the heart score isn't so important. What matters is whether or not you're low risk with a score of 0 to 3, or high risk with a score of 4 to 15. Agreement in putting patients into one of these two boxes was seen only 78% of the time, with a kappa of 0.48. Where they went wrong was mostly history and ECG. Now, to be clear, the researchers were not being asked to read the ECGs. That was actually done by other blinded physicians. And it's also not that the scores differed by a lot, usually just one point. But one point can move you from low risk to high risk. So maybe this subjectivity was why one-third of the low-risk patients were still admitted, disregarding the advice of the risk tool. The authors urged caution in using the heart score due to uncertainties in agreement, accuracy, and adherence. In a spoonful, the heart score had fair to moderate inter-rater reliability with researchers. And so we question if it's the best tool to be using, even though it's most important that it's used well in the hands of emergency department physicians. Now then, that wraps up our five articles from this past week. What did we learn today? First off, we saw that the risk of death and stroke appears to be too great to not treat blunt cerebrovascular injury patients with antithrombotics. No matter their vascular injury score, we have to treat them. Second, metronidazole was positively associated with central and peripheral nervous system toxicity in older adults when compared with clindamycin. Third, in emergency department trauma patients, chest ultrasound is more sensitive than supine chest x-ray for pneumothorax, and both have excellent specificities. Fourth, the Canadian syncope risk score, when shoehorned onto an Italian dataset, performed similarly to clinical judgment. And then finally, the fifth article, more disagreement about heart score scores. Doctors didn't agree very well with researchers in this study. That's another strike against the heart score, which already has some problems with agreement. Now then, you've earned them and we offer them CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education. All the details for that are at our website at journalfeed.org. And while you're there, feel free to sign up for our newsletter, which comes out every weekday morning, and so you can get all of these spoon feeds straight through your email. Our goal here, my goal here, is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you. <laughs>